the way I build prob is no posts at all, period. I, I find that that's way more complicated, way more resources than are needed. Cob walls are way stronger than any post could ever be. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 144 with Dave Olson. Did you know that Cobb is one of the oldest building materials around? According to my guest, Dave Olson, most Cobb houses are tiny houses because they take so long to build. Cobb is a mixture of clay, sand, straw, and water that hardens into a thick, load-bearing structure. Think curved earthen walls and whimsical building shapes. Dave Olson has been building with Cobb for over 20 years and has developed his own technique called Fast Cobb. Dave is here to tell us about the benefits of Cobb building and how to do it fast with Fast Cobb and more. I hope you stick around. like to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor for this episode, the online community that I run called Tiny House Engage. Tiny House Engage members are able to listen live as I record these podcasts and interviews and ask questions of our guests. So if you're a big fan of the show, it's a great way to get an inside look at the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast and get access to episodes weeks or even months before they go live on the feed. To learn more and register for Tiny House Engage, go to thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Registration will open Tuesday, January 12th, and it'll be open until we get 20 new members. Or for one week, whichever comes first. I can't wait to meet you in Tiny House Engage, and I know you'll love your new Tiny House community. That website again is thetinyhouse.net slash engage. I am here with Dave Olson. Dave Olson completed a Cobb workshop led by Ianto Evans in 1996 and has had mud and sourdough on his hands ever since. He began hosting natural building workshops in 2007, began instructing the revolutionary fast Cobb mixing and building methods in 2009, and turned 50 in 2013. Based on on off-the-grid Laschetti Island, he also hosts an apprenticeship that goes well beyond natural building, helping people develop responsible and environmentally sustainable lifestyles with enjoyment and ease. Dave has been very fortunate to have worked with many of the leading cob builders of our time and to have a dynamic cob and bicycle-loving daughter and dogs. Dave Olson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ethan. Yeah, it's great, great to have you here. I... I feel like we've been following each other for years and years, um, and we've we've traded some yeah. emails. So it's great. I'm actually getting to to see your face for the first time here on the Zoom. Yeah, same. Yeah, I'm so glad to finally connect directly. Likewise, likewise. So we're gonna have to start with with the real basics. Um, what is cob? Well, cob is a mixture of sand, clay, and straw that you mix together with water. So it's a, it's a very simple um, creation. Some people might say that it's that you have to have a specific ratio of each of those ingredients. I don't. The, the one ingredient that's unbelievably flexible is the clay portion. You can have 
as little as five to 10%. I don't know exactly how little you can go. And all the way up to 100%. The, the smallest amount is the amount that is needed to make the sand stick together and the, and the straw. Okay, so, and when you say percentage, you're referring to the percentage of the clay in the soil. Yeah, the material that you're using to actually build the walls, the percentage of that material. So anywhere between 5 to 10 to 100% clay. And I say 100%, I've never built with 100% clay, only because um, a wonderful man who came to one of my workshops told me about it and showed me books. And in Korea, they've been building clay houses for hundreds of years. And so maybe even thousands of years. So it obviously worked. Wow. The but cob specifically is designed to be um, the material is meant to have str- uh, sand in it. So so you know if you don't have very much sand, that's okay. You have a lot of clay, that's okay. But if you have a lot of sand and not so much clay, it has to stick together. Of course, otherwise you're not going to have a building that stands up. So you know, very uh, non-specific answer um, because at least it's certainly in the workshops, but in my um, own personal experience, we just experiment with what we have to make it as easy as possible because that's really the goal of this technique is to not only make something that's unbelievably resilient, long-lasting, non-toxic, unbelievably uh, hugely outperforming any other building that I've ever known but just to make it as really quick easy and simple as possible very nice so i guess my follow-up question we've got the kind of literal definition of what is cob right i guess what is how is cob used in home building like what do you what do you do with the cob yeah great um so literally like you can see right sort of up there that those are cob walls. So in the building that I'm sitting in, that I live in, um, the walls and the floor are all made of cob. Certainly don't recommend building a roof out of cob, um, simply because cob will absorb water. And when it does absorb water, it will loosen or lessen its strength. And so, um, Building a, a dome out of cob is, is would be a foolish thing to do in the climate I lived in, live in, and I don't know of any climates actually where it would be suitable. So I wouldn't try that. So certainly some non-cob materials are needed for any building that you do build, but the vast majority of the material for this uh, building, this house, is cob because the walls are a foot to 18 inches thick, and um, run from floor to ceiling and the floor is completely cob. The second floor is all wood. I considered putting a cob floor on top of a wooden subfloor, but the same principle, even though it's inside, very likely to stay perfectly dry. But if it doesn't, or if there's a lot of vibration, I just haven't tested a a second floor cob floor. So, Mm. you know, that's out of my realm of experience. But, um, but yeah, no, to, to lessen the cost of any building, if you build it at a cob, it's guaranteed to lower the cost because 
Yeah, literally, Cobb is dirt cheap. <laughs> <laughs> so that pun. I, I love the pun, and I'm, I I invite you to make <laughs> as many Cobb puns as you wish during this interview. Um, All right. Are there any climates? I was going to ask what climates do clock. Yeah. What climates does Cobb work in? But it sounds like almost I should ask the opposite. Like, are there any climates that Cobb doesn't work in? I would be surprised if there was a climate that it doesn't work in. Um, really hot climates. It's amazing in terms of keeping the building cool because it literally it, it's a, just a totally different kind of building than what most civilized people are used to. Right. We're used to often wooden or metal buildings that kind of try to trap the air, at least for heating and even for cooling, I imagine. Cobb doesn't do that. Cobb breathes. Um, it's constantly breathing. It doesn't, it's not drafty. You can't feel it breathing. But the air can get through the walls and um, it's a very, very slow transfer. So you never get sick building syndrome in a Cobb building, which is really nice. And um, the way that it performs is it, it, it's like a thermal battery. So when there's heat in the air around it, it will absorb that heat and um, hold it basically until the air around it is cooler than the cob, in which case then it releases heat. So it really moderates the temperature, especially of the inside part of the building, that of any building that's made out of cob. So, and that's what I'm just enjoying in our climate here. We have a climate where in the extreme parts of the summer, it's quite warm. It can get up to 30 degrees Celsius and probably over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's never uncomfortably hot inside our home, ever. It doesn't matter how hot it gets outside. In the winter, we we don't have a deep freeze um, at all, so that makes building foundations here easier. But um, it still gets to be about freezing and um, between zero and ten degrees Celsius all winter. And so, and it's very humid, so it's still quite cool uh, in terms of human living. And so we have a rocket mass heater that heats our floor, our cob floor, which then emanates that heat throughout the home. And so our feet are always warm, our bodies are warm. And the where cob comes in is overnight when the fire's out, the cob will um, emanate warmth back into the building. So even though it can be down to zero overnight, uh, in the morning, it's still 16 degrees inside the house, right? Even though it was only maybe 20, 22 degrees uh, when the fire went up. So very little heat loss. And because it's a, a, a thermal mass and the rocket mass heater is heating that thermal mass, it stays warm for days. Like if we were not to have a, a fire, say we went away for the weekend, we come back or something like that. And um, the, the space would not be the same temperature as outside. It would be significantly warmer, probably at least 10 degrees warmer. So, and yet 
the air circulates, the air breathes. It's not a sick building syndrome. There's no special ventilation system that has to be installed to make it livable. It just all naturally works. So the house, the house is able to breathe. It's not, even though you're, you are making this kind of dense mixture of, of clay and sand and hay and water, it still is able to breathe? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to say it's not hay, it's straw. Straw, okay. And that's an unbelievably common thing for people to say. But the difference is, if, if we'll just get technical for a moment, straw is a, a, a tubular type of material, so it's stronger. And hay is a solid material, and bacteria, especially anaerobic bacteria, thrive in hay. So um, straw is highly recommended and typically used, whereas hay is rarely, if ever, used. Got it. Have you ever heard of anyone building a cob building, like, to passive house kind of standards, which is kind of this standard that the building can generate a lot of its own heat? Okay. Well, the way I advocate designing any house, but especially a cob house, is um, passive solar with the passive solar design in mind. I don't live anywhere near any grid, so um, I, but I do recognize that most buildings in civilization are built on a grid, on a road grid typically, and it doesn't matter where south is if you're in the northern hemisphere, and it doesn't matter where north is if you're in the southern hemisphere, which doesn't make any sense from a practical building a passive mm-hmm. smart home point of view. So yeah, our home, um, as you can see, has tons of natural light coming in. So whenever the sun does shine here, uh, we get a lot of passive solar gain in the winter. In the summer, we get passive solar gain, but again, uh, the way that the cob performs, it, it just sucks up that heat. So it's not an issue, even though it's 30 degrees, to have the sun shining inside our home which, you know, wouldn't be the case in a, in a more typical boxy kind of home. So Yeah. So you've, I'm not sure that, I, did I answer that question? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I, I was, you've, you've definitely extolled some of the benefits of Cobb. Uh, I think we've touched on, you know, the thermal mass and the heat, uh, the cost is very inexpensive, the breathability. Are there any other, you know, benefits of Cobb that you, that you like to talk about? Well, cob as a, in general, yes, um, in the sense of uh, waste. So when most typical building sites have to have like a dumpster or you know some some sort of large bin to put all the garbage in. With a cob house, I didn't even I don't think I even hauled a bag of garbage away in a 900 square foot home that I built in five months. It there's no garbage because any excess cob just melts into the ground. Um, anything that you trim off, you know, that you might change, you take down a wall or something like radical or different like that, you just reuse the material. You don't have to throw anything away. So um, that's, for me, huge. Absolutely giant. Um, but for the typical home user, the thing that's quite remarkable to me is almost no maintenance. You know, if you've built your building well from the beginning, 
you might need to plaster once every 10 years, maybe in the high wear areas. Before I moved into this home, I lived in a 64 square foot tiny home and uh, for 10 years. So that was a very vertical oriented place because I had a, a loft um, that I could sleep in above um, the kitchen, essentially. And uh, uh, in that home, I was building other buildings. So I was in and out all the time, hard wearing, you know, construction zone for 10 years, basically. And after 10 years, I kind of looked at it and was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should plaster around the doors. And that was it. That was all the the wear that it, it endured. And um, so it's they're remarkably resilient that way. The thing about the technique that I use myself and that I teach, though, compared to what most people probably know of Cobb, is the speed of building. I call the technique that I've developed fast Cobb because it literally is fast. And um, not only is it faster than regular Cobb, it's dramatically faster. And I've had um, at least one professional carpenter come to our workshops and he has given me the confidence to say this technique is as fast as any technique that exists for building a building wow well let's um i don't know what my listeners um exposure to cob is you know it's it's something that i'm sure people have seen because there are tiny houses made of cob but Maybe you could cover, you know, what the traditional cob building process is. And then, you know, I'd love to learn about the fast cob process and what is different about it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Most cob buildings are tiny um, by necessity, simply because the, the traditional, if you will, West Coast, I call it traditional technique that Yanto taught me. It works, but it's so exhausting and slow because, uh, um, let's see if I can describe it verbally very well. In a, say, a 8 by 10 tarp, you've got maybe a couple of wheelbarrow loads of material on it. And the way you mix it is you dance on it, add straw, add water while you're dancing. And typically it's two people. So dancing like literally like with your feet. Yeah. Mush okay. Smushing the material around, trying to activate the clay with the water, mixing up the straw kind of thing. And, but you're constantly also every minute at least bending over and pulling on that tarp. So that's a lot of weight that you're pulling back. Um, and it's very exhausting on my back at least. And you're constantly, you know, jogging or dancing. So, you know, it's, it's a serious physical exertion for t at least 20 minutes and, and possibly 30 minutes until the material really starts to stick together. And the fast cob way of mixing, which was the uh, genesis of it, was given to me by that same Korean man, Sovan, who came to a workshop. He, um, we were teaching that um, technique that I just described, 
And early in the workshop, he just pat me on the shoulder and said, Dave, you know, I don't like this mixing. It's not easy. And I'm like, I get it. It's not easy. And it's your workshop. So do what you like. And we had bonded over making food from scratch with our two-year-old daughters at the time. So he took his noodle making technique uh, and literally transcribed it into a a cob mixing technique. And so a couple of days later, he showed me and, and we called it the four corner Korean noodle takeout method just for fun. And basically what he did was he shrunk the tarp down to maybe uh, three feet by four feet at, at the largest, maybe two or three, two by three rectangular, just to make it easier to access as a human. And now what I, I'm not totally sure what we did at first, but what I do now is I squat beside that tarp. I put um, probably a couple of shovel bowls, maybe three. I usually um, put material from a a wheelbarrow on the tarp, so I'm not measuring because it doesn't have to be exact at all. And um, I squat down beside it and, sorry, let me take a couple of steps back. So I, I now put out these tarps, at least 10, maybe 20, if the space allows 30, um, right beside each other. Then I use a wheelbarrow to deliver the material on each of the tarps, uh, a small amount, like two or three wheel, uh, shovelfuls on each tarp. Then I go around with straw and I put the straw on those piles of material. Then I have a hose with a sort of a sprinkler end on it. And I'll have that hose in my hand and I'll go and squat beside the, the first tarp. And I squat down and, and within 30 seconds, I've um, mixed all that material with the straw and watered it down to a, a, um, an, enough so that all the clay will be activated and um, start to bond, but not become like mush and just run off, not too much water. So then after the 10 to 20 seconds of flipping and mixing by using the tarp. That's a very valuable tool. Um, I just roll it up, fold it up, and then I start stamping on this, what I call a brick that I've just rolled up and made. And that leads to the second half of the building process, because that's the first half, the mixing. Um, You have to mix material to create something to build with. In our technique, so then I go to next tarp, next tarp, next tarp, make all these bricks. So now I've made all these wet bricks. And by the time I've made all these wet bricks, they've had a chance to really activate. The clay's activated by standing on them or jumping on them for 10 seconds, 15 seconds kind of thing. I'm putting pressure on, and so I'm really activating that clay I'm dispersing the water so that there's no dry spots. And that bond is really starting already. Whereas with the method that I initially learned, that bond doesn't start until you somehow get all that pile of material onto a wall, right? You somehow got to get it up there. And uh, the fun way with that technique is you make little cob balls, if you will, loaves, and you toss them from person to person. And the last person puts it on the wall, and then eventually you kind of knead it into the wall. But with that technique, you could, if you get a foot high, foot of height in a day of building, you're you're doing really well. Okay. With our te- with our technique with the bricks, you've got 
bricks that have integrity already, you bring them to the wall, you flip them, and you simply meld the two out the inside and the outside part of the wall, and you're done. So not only is it about 30 times faster than the first technique that I've learned, you can we can build at least three feet in a day without having any compromise in the wall integrity at all. So that's a huge, huge difference. Yeah. So it's fascinating to me. I love, I love that story that, that you adapted a noodle making technique because I can envision I have made homemade pasta before and I'm like, yeah, that is kind of how you make, you know, you put some filling in the pasta and you fold in the corners and mush it. But so these bricks that you're putting up on the wall, I'm envisioning that, you know, especially if you have a group of people, they're not all uniform in size and they might be different in, you know, somewhat different in their consistency in terms of like how much water is on them. How do you, how do you control for that? How do you account for that as the wall is going up? Well, thank you for asking that. That's an awesome question. And I wouldn't have thought to discuss that at all. That's unbelievably common, of course, especially during workshops. And um, when you're first learning, your consistency is far from ideal. And with Cobb or in fast Cobb in particular, it's all okay. You can totally compensate. It's a, it's really I call it more of a common sense technique um, because if you end up with a dry brick, well, if it's really dry and it doesn't hold together, you just ha- you simply have to add more water and and mix it so it does hold together. But if you've got a a brick that's not really wet but it holds together. And then you've got another brick that's really quite wet. You can put them on the wall, one on top of each other, and they just compensate for each other, basically. As long as they're holding together. I'm not advocating that you put a bunch of dry sand on the wall because it's not going to stay on the wall. In terms of brick sizes, absolutely another regular issue is that the, the brick size, if it's wider than the wall, well, we can just kind of mush it or meld it is what I call it to size. And um, we've used bricks to build out walls. So if you've got a whole bunch of bricks and you put them on the wall and you're not really paying attention for whatever reason, and suddenly your wall is a lot thinner than you want it to be, well, you can use our technique to put a brick on and literally curve it or fold it over the side. And instantly you've built that wall back out to the width that you want, likely. So because it's a wet brick that you're putting on, so I know the word brick often implies like these rectangular, very solid, you can't move them once they're in place at all kind of things. Our wet bricks are very malleable. So you can, yeah, squish them to size or fold them over to build out or even uh, cut them up if you want. With, by, with your hands. You don't need any special tools. So that's the other um, huge benefit of building with Bob in general is that the, the tool list is minimal. Um, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars of absolutely brand new tools, ugh, maybe a dozen dollars of used tools are necessary to start building. That's it. Fascinating. And, and it's actually helpful, like looking, you know, behind you at your house, 
helping to prompt me with questions. Oh, great. So, you know, in a, in a stick built structure that is framed, you know, we have to frame a special structure around a window or door to help carry the load coming down from the, the roof so that it doesn't crack your window or prevent your door from opening. Is there any structural framing required in a cob house around like a window or a door? Like, do you have to use two by fours or, you know, other lumber to do that? Or do they just go right into the cob? Yeah, again, right in. Um, another great question. Thank you. Uh, the way I build cob is no posts at all, period. I, I find that that's way more complicated, way more resources than are needed. Cob walls are way stronger than any post could ever be, assuming that you're building foot-wide uh, walls or bigger. If you're building eight-inch walls, they're still more than strong enough. You know, a, a, a foot-in-diameter post might be stronger, but I'm not an engineer, so I don't know, and I don't care. I just do it, and um, I've built you know, at least a dozen buildings, varying sizes, varying complexity, uh, different types of roofing systems, and I've had some failures, so I've learned what doesn't work. And um, I know firsthand that you don't need posts. So that's the first answer. The other answer is around windows and doors. You can frame them in. But again, that's just another waste of resources, really, and time. Because what I learned initially, because the technique to build was so much slower, you could literally put windows and doors into where they go and build up around them. But I've learned with our technique, you don't want to do that because it's just too fast. And the material is super heavy, of course. It's sand um, primarily and, and also clay with a lot of water. All those materials are super heavy. So that kind of weight will break windows and twist doors and whatnot. So what we do now is uh, we build holes. We, we literally leave a hole in the wall or um, for a door or a window, build up with pub, um, let it set so that it's not going to move much. So in, in the summertime, that's at most a week. Um, in the fall or the spring, that might be a couple of weeks of waiting time for the water to disperse, evaporate, and the, the wall to really settle. And then we put the window in and literally just cob it in, just with minimal amounts of cob, um, probably like six to eight bricks, depending on how big the window is. And same thing with the door. With the door, you, I haven't put a door in without a frame. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me, just because cob, as strong as it is, it is brittle. So um, if you're, if you've got a an area where you're literally pounding um, that part of the wall, it will degrade for sure. Um, so like if you just were to have a door slamming against a cob wall without a door frame, I've got metal door frames and I've got wooden door frames. I haven't tested this because I haven't bothered to. My intuition is the wall would just degrade and then you'd have to maintain that more frequently than we are, which is we're not at all. <laughs> so, um, so the metal or wooden door frame would take that um, 
abrasion and has. And even though it's surrounded by cob, I'm trying to think of a door frame that has needed repair. Um, just the plaster around a door frame has needed repair, and that's just from abrasion of walking in and out and carrying stuff through the doorways all the time. Um, but in terms of doors that have been, you know, slammed a lot or at least closed hard or just uh, not treated gently, um, I haven't even had an experience with one door coming loose in the club. So, so it, at most you need a frame for a door in the cob wall but for windows you don't need frames if you want a window to open um, you need a frame of course so that the window has something to um, um, attach to or slide in or something like that however you want that window to open but if you don't have a an opening window you don't need any frame at all you can just simply put glass in the wall amazing so you've mentioned a few times plaster um, can you talk about, you know, what, what do you mean when you say plaster? Is that something that you're putting on the inside, on the outside, on both? And, and what does it do? Plaster in our experience and our use of it is both outside and inside. The reason for it in a car building on the inside is really to minimize the dusting. It's a sand building, building made of sand, of course. So depending on the clay content if it's a high clay content in the wall it doesn't dust very much of course because there's a lot of glue holding all those sand particles if there's a lower clay amount in the wall still enough to make it strong and stick together but minimal clay i've built quite a few walls with minimal clay um, if you touch that wall it's gonna um, um, dust off if you will right and uh, i don't know how long it would take couple of centuries to continually rub that wall for it to wear right through so it's not like a structural issue that dusting but you know a practical living kind of issue you don't want to have to sweep or clean your counters constantly because it's always being dusted on so we plaster and we use a natural plaster because it's a natural building and so our plaster is in south africa they have a special name for it in their language it's called detema and it's a mixture of cow manure and clay mostly cow manure 80 percent cow manure and 20 percent clay and it is amazing if you the reason why we use cow manure is cows have a special enzyme in their digestive system so what it manifests practically for plastering is it it goes on super smooth and it hardens up really really nicely does it smell it does initially, yes. When it's wet, it smells. As soon as it dries, there's no smell. Like no, anybody that comes into this building has never ever guessed that there's cumber on the walls. Um, so, so yeah, that that can be an issue for some folks if you can't deal with the smell. But you can also use uh, horse manure. It just doesn't have the enzyme. And I haven't really used horse manure to compare it. So I. I I, I know I remember using it at one point and it just didn't perform as well. So I, I just didn't even bother anymore. So, um, so that's our plaster. You put it, you can put it on the outside too, again, to prevent the erosion of the building. Most of our buildings, we just haven't got to because we've been building and now we're finishing this building 
just about finished. So, uh, so the next evolution in our building life here on a day-to-day basis will be um, getting the outside parts of the walls um, finished now, and we're going to do mosaics and things like that as well. So you can really, we're going to sculpt it. We're going to make reliefs and have some fun with it. Nice. What kind of foundation is required for a cob building? Like, can you just put it right on top of the earth or is there something you need to do to prevent moisture from the earth from, you know, coming up into your cob? Absolutely. Yeah. Cob will wick up moisture from the earth. So if you just put it on the ground and water hits that wall, it will wick it all up and eventually degrade and it can, it can even collapse. Um, so definitely you need a foundation. What kind of foundation? Well, I've used stacked rocks here because we have rocks here. I don't like concrete or cement, any cement products. This house, including the shower room, has zero cement in it at all. And so we, but back to the foundation, um, I stack the rocks one over two and two over one is the mantra there so that you don't build towers that can not be tied together or, or that are not tied together and therefore could move because that's the other main function of the foundation is to um, keep the building from shifting from moving and that's the that's needed in any building especially but it just it's just as relevant in a car building although I have a feeling, and I haven't tested this out, that if the foundation moves, the cob walls probably wouldn't move because they're this monolithic mass. They're just so right. strong. But I'm not advocating testing that out. So, um, but what we do, yeah, stack rocks. You could, again, pour uh, cement if you want. It's just a con- concrete, sorry, concrete foundation made of cement. But cement is made at... Uh, unbelievably high temperature and often they throw in toxic chemicals because that's just a nice way to get rid of them it seemingly get rid of them but of course there's that residue but ecologically speaking it is far from benign whereas stacked rocks it's just a bunch of human labor to move them or at least here it is you might even have a machine somewhere to move them to make it easier we don't but so it it's a very human scale technique and um, very can be beautiful and very effective so um yeah i think that's it and then oh the other detail i guess is that the stacked rock foundation typically is knee high my knee is quite higher is taller i guess than many so i don't build up quite to the height of my knee but you know a couple of feet is more than adequate and what the other role there, not only are you trying to prevent water from wicking up, you're also trying to prevent water from splashing from rain. So if you've just got a six inch foundation, for instance, the splash will splash above that. And it depends again on your location, your weather, whatnot. Over time, it will wear the wall away, um, in which case there's some maintenance to do. It's not going to be catastrophic if there's splash, but if there's running water to your building, it could be catastrophic because there's a constant source of water that's constantly being wicked up. But um, for a, a knee-high foundation, you wouldn't have any maintenance at all for hundreds of years. 
So when you're talking about a stacked rock foundation, are you, is this like for the entire floor of the building? So like you're making, if you would say are building a, a round cob house, this is a big circle of rocks or is it just for underneath the walls? Yeah. Just underneath the walls. Okay. For sure. And so you can do a cob floor right mm-hmm. on the earth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Again, it depends, right? So uh, your building site, is it in the path of water that will run to it? If it is, so if you're on this hill, on the top of a hill, and you've got a roof over your building, and every side slopes away from your building, then yes, you could put that cob floor right on the the earth. If uh, I think the vast majority, almost probably close to 99% of cases is uh, there's going to be water running towards your building from at least one direction, That's the way that life is on planet Earth. And um, so you'll need to either build a swale to divert that water around your building or um, a French drain underneath the foundation to allow the water to fall to the bottom of the foundation and then be directed around the building that way as well. So in whatever way you're going to get the vast majority of the water to be not coming into your home, you still want to have the floor not susceptible to disaster or um, just getting flooded in some way. So what um, I do is I excavate down to the bedrock because there is bedrock to excavate here too. Some places you wouldn't be able to do that, of course. Excavate enough and then put um, either a drain, if it's very likely that water is going to enter your home, a drain pipe at the bottom of that excavation to allow the water to get into the pipe and then the pipe facilitates its exit quicker. Um, You put many pipes in if, if needed. And then cover those pipes with uh, canvas or newspaper so that the holes in the pipes um, don't allow the material to get into the pipe. And then put round rock, uh, drain rock, on top of those to allow the water to fall with gravity through those rocks into the pipes, which then are exited. And then you would put finer material on the, or cover the drain rock so that the finer material doesn't get, um, allow the get into the drain rock and then you put the finer you say gravel on top of that and then you can build your subfloor and that's another magic thing about cob um, cob subfloors just magically grow and are built when you mix inside your home um, that you're building or inside the building that you're building inevitably little bits of cob are falling off your tarp and they over time just build a nice inch or two subfloor and then once that subfloor is done then i pour a a layer of finished top floor on top and it's only about a half inch wow should we keep going on the floor scene sure sure let's finish the floor out yeah okay so uh once and you for the cob floor you i pour it so it's a liquid mixture because then gravity is helping level it. And then once it's dry, which can take a while because it's so wet, uh, I linseed oil it. And initially I tried 
four layers and I didn't find that adequate. So now I um, put seven applications of linseed oil on. And then um, if you want to, you can uh, wax it with a half, half, half beeswax and half linseed oil mix. Wow. And that makes it waterproof. So you can spill anything you want on it and it doesn't get absorbed. It wears after about six months um, of heavy use, it, it needs to be reapplied, the wax, but uh, the linseed doesn't wear out. And we can dance on our floor, we can drop things, we can do whatever. And it's not a hard like concrete floor. That's the other amazing thing about cob floors is that they feel like they have some give, even though I can't believe they're giving anything up when you walk on them. But there, you don't. I my legs just don't get tired standing and working on a cob floor, whereas in an hour or two on a concrete floor, I can notice that yeah. I'm on a concrete floor. Yeah. Well, I I definitely want to make sure we have time to talk about kind of how to learn cob and the workshops that you offer. Um, but an, one last question on the building process: um, where where do you tell people to find the materials? You know, like, if, you know, I want to go out in my backyard and I want to build, I want to build a cob pizza oven or I want to build a little cob structure. Do I just get a shovel and start digging in the ground or, or are there places to source the, the materials? Well, that's what I would advocate is uh, exactly what you said. Get a shovel, start digging, see what you find. Again, so what I, I use almost exclusively, I, Two summers ago, we went to uh, Alberta to build a giant cob oven. It was nine feet wide, eight feet tall, and seven feet deep. Wow. It was a showcase as well as a practical pizza oven. So in that case, I was in a town where it, it was a restaurant and it's surrounded by a parking lot, so I couldn't just go and dig the ground. And we also had time constraints, so um, I had to source it. And uh, I went to a landscape company and sourced it. So getting the clay is not usually very easy in civilization because everybody builds with concrete and clay doesn't allow concrete to work. It, it interferes with the, um, that process. I don't know the details, but that's what I'm told. So nobody has clay to sell almost anywhere. So in this town, I had to almost beg um, a landscape guy to talk, and the whole place was covered, was built on clay, like everything is clay. So if I had the ability to get a backhoe or a shovel and just start digging, we would have had abundance of clay. But we had to get it sourced, and then we also got um, the gravel or the sand um, easily sourced. That's easy. That part's easy. Um, but if you're just going to experiment and start building on your own, I highly recommend digging where you're going to build because voila you've got your material right there if it is um usable material for this house again I'm, we're building on bedrock primarily here so we just didn't have the material to, to dig up so i had um i sourced it on different places excuse me on the island um, most of this building was built just a couple of blocks i guess um away and so I had a um, friend with an excavator dig it out of a gravel pit, but it was the stuff they didn't want, which was perfect for cod because it had enough 
clay and it was very, very sandy, very coarse sand. So that's the ideal, coarse sand and uh, enough clay, maybe 25%, that's what Yanto has told me. That probably is ideal, I trust his scientific approach, but it's not necessary. Again, you just need enough. So if you dig in your backyard and you, you got a pile of material that you suspect is gonna work, put it on a tarp, mix it together, make a brick and let it dry and see what it does. If it holds together and has some strength, you've got your material. If it doesn't, if it doesn't stick together, then you're probably gonna need to source some clay, um, that's my guess, to add to that material to make it sticky enough. But in my experience on this island, anything that has, that's been dug out of the ground at subsoil, not doesn't have any organic topsoil in it, is what I call ready mix. And so it's ready to mix. So it's got, it's got the right balance of sand and clay in it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that right balance is a giant um, range. Yeah. Well, we were talking before, before we started rolling about baking bread and how it's like, what works for me works for me. But like, if you tried my technique, it probably would fail. And if I tried yours, it probably wouldn't work. And it sounds like with Cobb, you know, there is some, there is something to it being so hyper local. Like, what is that material that you're working with right there on site, and whose hands are mixing it, and and all that kind of stuff? I I agree in the sense that yeah, different materials are all over the earth, um, and the beauty of that is all those buildings that are going to be built are going to have their own unique characteristic for sure. But in terms of buildability and strength and durability and all the critical components, I can't say everything's going to work, but I would be surprised if anything didn't work. That's, that's how flexible this technique is. It's, you do not need to go and get you know, 75% sand and 25% clay. You can do that. It works. But... If you dig some stuff out of the ground, it's likely to work too. So what's easier for you? Because that's always been my approach to building. What's easier for you? If it's easier to go and buy stuff and have it delivered and you have the precise ratios that you feel comfortable with, so it's easy. You're not worrying. You're not thinking. Beautiful. Do that. If it's easier for you to dig in the backyard and, and make a test brick and not have to pay for transportation and pollute the air and all that sort of stuff, then go for that. Right. Nice. Both work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I, I just realized there's one more major topic that I didn't ask you about um, before we talk about your, your workshops, which is the, the roofing systems. Cause, and, and the second floors, cause that does look like it's the one place where you are placing timbers. Absolutely. Yeah. I, again, I haven't, wanted to test or experiment with Cobb above people's heads. Uh, Yanto cautioned us to not even go there. And I just haven't gone there because I, I don't see that being easy. Wood spanning is easy, right? So um, trying to make bricks and <laughs> I don't even know how that could come close to being easy. So for roofing systems and second floors, I do have two 
posts in this building because I just wanted to have a really open interior. And so I use a post, two posts to hold up the second floor, but most of the second floor is hold, held up by cob walls. So if I had wanted to not use posts, very doable. It's just, it would have been not as open concept uh, a building and um, there'd be just more walls, interior walls, which is totally fine. Um, but uh, the roof is all um, cut beams, cut and peeled beams that um, come from the forest right around the, the building. So we've done all of that ourselves. There's no milled wood. Oh no, that's not true. So after I put the rafters on and the um, second floor floor joists on, that's all round wood from the forest. Then I put milled wood on top of that to create a flat surface for the floor and to create a flat surface for the metal roof that I put on this building. Um, the very first two buildings that I built, um, I also hand split the cedar shakes. And so those buildings are completely natural. There's no um, human made materials at all, really. Um, like trees grew the roof and, and trees grew the rafters. And um, we dug out the so soil from the earth. The metal, initially, I was thinking, well, that's not necessarily natural. It's still out of the earth. And of course, there's a lot of uh, processing involved to create that metal. But the reason I went to metal is it's completely fireproof. So this building is, is I can't imagine this building ever catching on fire. It's, there's ceiling, uh, there's a ceiling that is made of wood and the rafters are made of wood, but the top is metal. So any fire coming to the building from the top would hit the metal. I wouldn't have any exposure to wood and any fire from the inside, it might catch the ceiling on fire but the building would totally be intact and um, the rafters are substantial they're you know at least four inches that's the bare minimum um, up to six inches in diameter so i have no worries at all about fire in this building and um, so yeah anyway get back to the roofing um, the metal i've chosen to use because it's half the price of cedar shakes and it's a tenth of the time or labor, and uh, it's just so much simpler and faster. So uh, cedar shakes are gorgeous, but um, in on this island now, in this in the summer times, it gets super super dry, so fire is a, a an issue or a concern. And so far, it hasn't been an issue, thankfully. Um, if you're in California, it's obviously an issue. Um, so yeah, metal roofs and cob make a heck of a lot of sense there. Yeah. Well. You've been so generous with with information here, and I want to make sure that we get to talk about you know the process for for learning fast cob. Um, can you tell me about the workshops that you offer? Oh, thank you. Yeah, glad to. Um, I first want to preface by saying, you know, the technique is far from complicated. What uh, the workshops, what they do for people that come is they really help you learn a technique that absolutely works um, without question. You can see the results here and get mentored firsthand so that you can really quickly deepen your understanding and, and skill level. But I learned all this on my own. 
I, you know, Yanto gave me the introduction to the other technique. And so I had a few years to sort of mull that around. I didn't build much because it was just too exhausting and I didn't build really. And, and then finally I had a place to build. And so I, I started having workshops because I needed help building. I had attempted to build a, a very small outhouse the year before I started hosting workshops. And uh, my daughter was just born. So our first, the first mix I made, she was sleeping on my shoulder as a two-month-old. And that whole summer, I tried to build this very small outhouse. And I still have walls that are maybe three feet high at the most. Um, I just haven't got back to that project. But it's kind of a testimony to the fact that that technique needed lots of assistance. And that assistance was going to come through workshops. But then Soban came to the third workshop that I hosted while teaching that technique. And he revolutionized my life by showing me the genesis of a new mixing method. And then since then, I've created the, the new building method with the brick. So I literally don't need workshops to build anymore. It's way faster for me to build on my own than to build with helpers through a workshop. So. Um, that all of that to say i love workshops because the people that come are magical <laughs> like it's always a magical four or, or five or eight day session people bond as much as the clay bonds to the sand it's really lovely and um it's an opportunity to have everything ready for you right the materials ready uh, the projects ready and you get mentorship so so that's the benefit of making the trip here and it's not an easy trip we're not easily accessible so that's why i also say if you are keen you can't make it here try it do it anyway and um there's lots of you could do the the slow painful what i call the slow painful method by finding uh, videos online try to avoid that i hope to one day have an online workshop available I've just been sidetracked by life too much. Um, so maybe in another year or two, I will have that available. But I think I still have some videos on my website that give you an introduction at least to the, the mixing. And, um, and then just try to make it your own if you, if you can't come to a workshop. And if you do come to a workshop, you'll hear that all the time. This is how I do it, and I want you to make it your own. So, so yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun if you come and you'll have fun if you don't come too. <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three books or resources um, that have inspired you that you'd like to recommend? And they could be about cob building or not. Okay. Right on. Well, they're probably all not cob building. <laughs> so the first book that always comes to my mind is Jean Liedloff's uh, Continuum Concept. And that's a book about um, a woman who is now dead. She was 25 when she wrote it, a New York-based woman. She was traveling in Europe, got invited to go um, look for gold and silver in the Amazon. And um, she transformed her life and many people's lives by going there and interacting with indigenous peoples that had not become civilized in any way. And she 
couldn't figure out initially what the heck were, was so different about these people. And then she realized they're all happy all the time. There's no conflict at all. Like all age groups, anytime, any kind of situation, like how could this be, right? Uh, any of us growing up in civilization would not recognize that as a, as a norm. So she came up with some theories. She went back there and tested those theories because they had, um, she had got to know them well enough that uh, it made sense and for her to be there and uh, wrote this book. And so basically it's about how children are, are brought up and it's not a parenting book, but if you're a parent, you want to read it because it would, especially if you're planning to become a parent, because uh, the keys are early in life and um, it's just a, a fascinating read and it's an easy read for sure. Nice. Well, I really appreciate the recommendation and, um, Dave Olson, thank you so much for for being on the show and sharing your your experience and knowledge and philosophy of of Cobb building. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ethan. I really appreciate this opportunity, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing more of your podcasts. I'm so glad that you're really uh, a huge motivator for people to embrace the tiny home concept and. Now Cobb can not only build tiny homes, but now it can build them quickly and easily. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much to Dave Olson for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to Dave's website and information about his workshops, as well as some of my favorite photos of his Cobb buildings at thetinyhouse.net slash 144. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 144. Don't forget to learn more about Tiny House Engage, my exclusive online community at thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Registrations typically fill up in a few days, so if you are thinking about joining, head on over to thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Registration is opening this coming Tuesday, and if you go to the website now, you can sign up to be notified as soon as registration is open. That way you do not miss your spot. Again, that website is thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.